Hi everybody, a lot of material to cover today on Counter Melody. I'm going to lead off with memorial tributes to two artists who died in the month of November. First is the British soprano Joan Carlyle, who died on the 8th of November at the age of 90. She was a stalwart member of Covent Garden for 20 years from 1955 to 1975 and went from singing soubrette roles like Oscar to eventually singing roles like Arabella by Richard Strauss. She didn't make very many recordings, but the ones that she did are memorable. There's Anedda in Pagliacci with Herbert von Karajan, and I think even more importantly, she sings the role of Jennifer in the 1971 studio recording of Michael Tippett's The Midsummer Marriage. Here's a brief excerpt from that. We also hear the orchestra and chorus of the Royal Opera House Covent Garden, conducted by Colin Davis.
Another loss in the month of November was the bass baritone Jake Gardner, who died on November 2nd at the age of 73. He had an active career the world over, including a stint as principal baritone at the opera in Cologne and guest performances the world over. He's particularly remembered for singing Escamillo in Peter Brook's adaptation of Carmen, La Tragédie de Carmen. There's a film of that in which he's stunning to behold and hear, because it has more in common with today's episode. I'm going to play you an excerpt instead from a series of songs by the Austrian composer Wilhelm Grosch. This was a series of songs that were premiered in 1930 called Afrika Songs. And I'm going to play the song for you entitled Lied der Baumwollpacker, a text translated from the original English by Jean Toomer and set by various composers, not only Wilhelm Grosch, but Hans Eisler and Alexander Zemlinski as well. This 1997 recording was part of the Decca Records series Entartete Musik, of music that had been suppressed by the Third Reich. Accompanying Jake Gardner, we hear Robert Ziegler and the Matrix Ensemble. artists find comfort in their memories and in their beautiful performances. Finally, before the episode proper begins, at the risk of sounding completely mercenary, I'm going to mention that I am able to produce countermelody because of the support of my Patreon people. I realize that for the podcast to be able to continue, I have to increase by some way or another the money that I take in by fourfold. Therefore, if you enjoy the podcast, 
I would ask that you consider becoming a supporter for as little as $2 a month or $25 a year. If you are so moved, please go to patreon.com slash countermelody, where you can pledge your support and gain immediate access to the 30 bonus episodes that I have produced thus far. Coming in 2022, there will be additional media and other projects that will appear exclusively for my Patreon supporters. So bear that in mind, and thank you again. And once again, Claudia has been waiting very patiently in the wings to usher in the episode proper. So take it away, Claudia. Welcome to Counter Melody, the podcast on great singers and great singing. As always, I am your host, Daniel Gundlach. No preaching here, no lecturing, well, maybe just a tiny bit of each, but the primary spotlight will always be on the singers that enrich and enhance our lives, no matter what is going on in the world around us. Thanks for joining me. And now, this week's episode. Hi everyone, today's subject is the African-American bass baritone Jules Bledsoe, who lived from 1897 to 1943. If Jules Bledsoe is remembered today at all, it is as the creator of the role of Joe in Jerome Kern and Oscar Hammerstein II's Showboat. This episode will be framed by his two different performances of that iconic song, Old Man River. This first one was a soundtrack for a silent version of Showboat that was made in 1929, to which was quickly appended a prologue that included four songs from the show. Jules Bledsoe's performance of Old Man River concluded that prologue, and it's that performance that we hear right now. Oh, man, we 
feel like I have a special case to plead for this artist, because if he is remembered at all, it's because he was not Paul Robeson. In many, many ways, he was not Paul Robeson. He was politically conservative. He was not in enmity with the government of his native country. And he was a gay man who lived more or less openly as part of an interracial couple when such things simply didn't happen. Also, he has a very different artistic profile as an interpreter than does Paul Robeson. These are just a few of the many things that we'll be talking about over the course of this, what I hope will be a very interesting episode. Now, as I said, Jules Bledsoe is not so well remembered today, but back in the day, he was certainly very important and well-known. So well-known that when Billie Holiday made her first studio recording, Your Mother's Son-in-Law, it includes a reference to Jules Bledsoe. If you listen carefully to this excerpt, you can hear, You don't have to sing like Bledsoe. You can tell the world I said so. This recording is from 1933, and we hear Benny Goodman and his orchestra accompanying Billie Holiday. You don't have to have a hanker to be a broker or banker. No three, just simply be my mother's son-in-law. Needn't even think of trying to be a mighty social lion. Sipping tea if you will be my mother's son-in-law. Ain't got the least desire. To set the world on fire Just wish you'd make it proper To call my old man papa You don't have to sing like that so You can tell the world I said so Can't you see you've got to be My mother's son-in-law I want to acknowledge two sources that I have used in particular in putting this episode together. One is an essay by Lynette Geary that was published in The Black Perspective in Music in 1989. This is where one can derive many basic facts about Jules Bledsoe's career. Another more original, perhaps, and pathbreaking essay is that by Katie N. Johnson called Brutus Jones's Remains, The Case of Jules Bledsoe, that was published in 2015 in the Eugene O'Neill Review. Both of these were invaluable sources, and if you can get your hands on them, I'd recommend taking a look at them, particularly the Katie Johnson article. Jules Bledsoe was born the 29th of December, 1897, in Waco, Texas. His grandfather was a preacher who died while Jules, Julius, as his name was at the time, was only a toddler. His parents also divorced before he was two years old, and he was raised in his grandparents' home, which was now populated by his mother, his grandmother, and several aunts, who took an active part in introducing him to music and training him in it. At the age of five, Jules Bledsoe sang his first performance in public at his late grandfather's church. He attended the Central Texas Academy, which was a prep school, and graduated as valedictorian. Following that, he attended the Bishop College for Negroes and graduated in 1918. And by the way, I just need to say that there are certain 
times that language is going to be used on this podcast that is not language that we would be using today, particularly in some of the musical selections that I'm going to play for you. But I hope that you will be able to put this all in an historical context. After graduating from Bishop College, Julius Bledsoe moved to Brooklyn, where he worked as a freelance musician and eventually began to study at Columbia for a medical degree. But when his mother died in 1920, he reassessed his priorities and switched to vocal study. He worked with a famous singer-composer and teacher at the time named Claude Warford. He made relatively quick progress in his study, and in 1924, he was presented at the Aeolian Hall, an important concert hall at the time, in his professional recital debut. In this, he was represented by the famous agent Saul Hurok. He sang a program that included Baroque music, art song in French and German, Massenet's Vision Fugitive, which we heard Marcia Sanger sing last week, remember? American and British songs by Edward McDowell, Edward Elgar, and Frank Bridge, and arrangements of spirituals. Now would be an appropriate time to play you a recording of Jules Bledsoe from 1931, singing Schubert's Du bist die Ruhe with an orchestral accompaniment. From what I've been able to determine, this recording was made in London when Jules Bledsoe made his first journey there in the spring of 1931. I have to acknowledge that although his German diction is, let's say, spotty, it's still really interesting to have him in his vocal prime singing classical music and art song in particular. Oh, 
For two years, Julius Bledsoe, as he was still known, performed on the concert circuit. And finally, in the fall of 1926, he made his operatic debut in the role of Tizan in the opera Deep River that was composed by W. Frank Harling to a libretto by Lawrence Stalling. No doubt these names are not necessarily going to be familiar to a present-day audience, so let me just do a very brief introduction. Lawrence Stalling, the librettist, was the co-author of the anti-war drama What Price Glory, which was also turned into a film. Frank Harling was a composer who spent a good deal of time in Hollywood following the production of this opera, which was very well received and was, in fact, the first opera to be produced in the U.S. with a racially mixed cast. Julius Bledsoe was singled out for his performance of a voodoo priest in the second act. While the opera was successful at the time, as far as I know, it did not receive further performances, and I don't even know if the performing materials even still exist. But I do have two examples of Frank Harling's compositions. As I mentioned, he went on to Hollywood after this operatic undertaking, and he ended up doing quite a bit of original composition and scoring for film. Certainly his most famous composition, I would say, was written in collaboration with the songwriters Leo Robin and Richard Whiting. That's the song Beyond the Blue Horizon, which Jeanette MacDonald premiered in the 1930 film Monte Carlo. We hear her here in a 1950 recording conducted by Robert Russell Bennett. Gone, gone, all my grief and woe, what matter where I go if I that Frank Harling wrote was called Sing You Sinners, and it was premiered by Lillian Roth in the film Honey. While Lillian Roth is always interesting to listen to, I found a different recording than I'm going to feature of that song, Sing You Sinners. That is by the fascinating African-American trumpeter-slash-vocalist Valeda Snow, whom none other than Louis Armstrong acknowledged as the second greatest trumpet player in the world. She has a very interesting history, and she may very well be turning up on a future episode of Counter Melody. For now, here's her version from 1935 of Sing You Sinners, which sounds suspiciously to me like Swing You Sinners. Fellas drop everything Let that harmony ring Up to heaven and sing Swing You Sinners let your arms all about Let the Lord hear you shout Call that music right out 
1926 was a big year for Jules Bledsoe. He participated in the world premiere under Serge Kusevitsky of a piece called The Creation, composed to a text by James Weldon Johnson. That was composed by none other than Louis Gruenberg, who will be reappearing later on in the episode. Also in 1926, Jules Bledsoe took on the lead role in a play called In Abraham's Bosom by the Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Paul Green. This took place at the Provincetown Playhouse, which also served as a very important performance venue for the work of Eugene O'Neill, who will also be resurfacing later in the episode. In 1927 came the first production of the piece for which Jules Bledsoe is most remembered today, and that is, of course, Showboat. You probably noticed in that version of Old Man River that I played at the beginning of the episode that Jules Bledsoe has a very different approach than did Paul Robeson, for whom the role was originally intended. He has a much more emphatic, some might even say melodramatic, delivery, as you hear in the following short passage from that same 1929 film version. Jules Bledsoe had always been including spirituals on his programs. I would say the majority of the extant recorded material by Jules Bledsoe is of arrangements of spirituals, either with orchestra or piano accompaniment. I'm going to play you excerpts from three of those right now. The first is the song Poor Mourner, which was not a spiritual that I had known before, because the documentation on some of these recordings is pretty spotty. I don't know exactly when this was made. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Bledsoe stated on numerous occasions that he felt that spirituals were the only real American music. Here's a spiritual that is often known as Heaven, and on the label of this record, it's referred to as Gonna Shout All Over God's Heaven. Again, I'm not sure exactly when the recording's from, but you have further representation of Jules Bledsoe's unique delivery. When we get to him, we're gonna put on our robes. We're gonna wear them all over God's heaven. Everybody's talking about hemming, wine, and hemming. We're gonna wear them all over God's heaven. I got a crown, you got a crown. All of God's children got crowned. When we get to heaven, we're gonna put on our crowns. We're gonna wear them all over God's heaven. Everybody talking about heaven, wine at heaven. Gonna wear all over God's heaven. I got a song, you got a song. All of God's children got a song. When we get to heaven, we're gonna sing our song. We're gonna sing all over God's heaven. Everybody's talking about heaven, wine at heaven. Wanna sing all over God's heaven. I've got slippers, you got slippers. All God's children got slippers. When we get to heaven, we're gonna put on our slippers. We're gonna slip all over God's heaven. Everybody's talking about heaven, wine and heaven. Gonna slip all over God's heaven. Gonna slip all over God's heaven. Now here's a curio for you. Jules Bledsoe made a number of shorts, 
all of which I believe involved singing. I found a copy of one of them on the internet. This was made for the Pate Film Company in 1932. The piece is referred to as Dear Old Southland. So it's a nice big helping of plantation nostalgia, but you'll hear that the refrain is adapted from the spiritual deep river. This is really worth looking up on YouTube because you get to see Jules Bledsoe in performance. I As an interesting contrast, here's Jules Bledsoe's recording of the spiritual from which Dear Old Southland was derived, Deep River. Again, I don't know when the recording is from, but it's really interesting to hear, for instance, the portamento that he uses both in Dear Old Southland and in Deep River on My Home is... He does this great big portamento, which is not at all what one has come to expect from this song, but it's characteristic of the, well, I almost want to call it interventionist approach that Bledsoe took to some of his material. Oh, mm-hmm. 
in the same year that that silent version of Showboat was released, 1929, Jules Bledsoe made a further operatic appearance as Amonazro in Aida at the Gallo Theater in New York. That fall, he joined the row company of Showboat that included Irene Dunn in her first appearances as Magnolia. She, of course, is featured in the film version directed by James Whale, which stars Paul Robeson as Joe. Here is Irene Dunn in a 1941 recording led by Victor Young and his orchestra of another Jerome Kern standard, They Didn't Believe Me. I think she's just a magnificent singer, and she's one of my favorite actresses, her political leanings aside. And when I told them how wonderful you are, they didn't believe me, they didn't believe me, your eyes, your lips, your curly are in a cloud beyond compare You're the handsomest thing That one could see And when I tell them And I certainly am going to tell them That you're the man Whose wife one day I'll be So it was also, evidently, politically very conservative, unlike Paul Robeson, who, of course, got into enormous trouble for his progressive political stances. In 1931, Jules Bledsoe appeared in recital on the stage of Carnegie Hall. This is the first time we have documentation of Jules Bledsoe performing spirituals arranged by himself. And it's here that we really should acknowledge that Jules Bledsoe had a parallel career as a composer. Again, this will come up in greater detail later in the episode. Directly after his Carnegie Hall concert, Jules Bledsoe left on a European tour. That included appearances at the London Palladium and in Paris, Den Haag, and Amsterdam. While he was touring in London, he made his first and, as far as I can tell, only recording of a composition of his own called Does I Love You, which, interestingly, on one of the 78 issues of this song is inaccurately titled Does He Love You? It's nice to have documentation of Jules Bledsoe doing a song of his own since there is no evidence of any of his further compositions, which we will discuss very soon. Does I love you? Can you get it? Does I love you? 
By the way, he was also fluent in French and German, although based on the recordings that we hear of his work in French and German, I would say that his French was much more echt than was his German. But I have two examples of him in recordings that were made in France in 1931. The first might surprise you. It's a translation into French of Dein ist mein ganzes Herz. It's not a flawless recording, but it's fascinating to hear Jules Bledsoe in this material. He still has a very, let's say, over-emphatic or perhaps over-enthusiastic delivery, and he makes the perhaps not very well-advised choice to transpose the final iteration of the refrain up into a range in which he is not quite comfortable. But up until that point, there's very much to enjoy in his performance. Partout, 
in France in 1931 is the song Le Corps by the now-forgotten French composer and painter Ange Flégier. If he's remembered for anything these days, it's for this one single song composed for the bass voice and recorded by such notable interpreters as Paul Planson and Fedor Chaliapin. Jules Bledsoe gives this more than the old college try, but when he goes down to the low note at the very end, the voice barely sounds. But there's so much to enjoy in this recording nonetheless. Oh, oh, oh. 
Bledsoe was in Europe for nearly a year and finally returned to the United States in the spring of 1932. That summer, he took part in a fascinating premiere, again portraying a voodoo man in an opera called Tom Tom that was produced in Cleveland. This opera was composed and the libretto written by Shirley Graham, a composer who later became the wife of W.E.B. Du Bois. The production featured an all-black cast, and there has been recent interest in this piece. There exists online a virtual seminar performance and panel discussion of this work that was hosted by Carolyn Jackson-Smith, professor of theater and Africana studies at Oberlin College in which Harvard lecturer Lucy Kaplan, who originally rediscovered the work, also participated. There are a number of excerpts from the opera that were performed with piano accompaniment, and I'm going to play one for you right now, which features the bass baritone Markel Reed and the pianist Kyle Walker. This is just to give you a tiny glimpse of what this piece sounded like. Oh, <laughs> 
Bledsoe continued to appear in operatic performances occasionally, but they would only be in these black operas or as Amonazro in Aida. What's interesting is that in some of these productions, he would be cast opposite white singers. There were a couple whose names jumped out at me. One was the Hungarian-born Anna Roselle, who I believe sang the German-language premiere of Puccini's Turandot, and who a number of years later also sang the role of Marie in the U.S. premiere of Berg's Wozzeck conducted by Leopold Stokowski. She's a fantastic singer, one who I've enjoyed and delighted in for a long time. She was cast opposite Jules Bledsoe at least once in Aida, so I'm going to offer a very brief, brief, brief excerpt of her singing O Patria Mia. This recording's from 1928. Another singer whose name jumped out at me was that of the contralto Marie Powers, who sang Amneris in a performance in which Jules Bledsoe was cast as Amonazro. She has her own place in history because she created the role of Baba or Flora in Menotti's The Medium. But she sang other things as well, including the New York City opera premiere of William Grant Stills' opera, Troubled Island, in which she was cast as Lawrence Winters's wife. I've played an excerpt from that recorded performance before. Now I'm going to offer Marie Powers in just a very brief excerpt, singing something that we really wouldn't associate with her, that is art song. And here she is in a 1951 recording with Frank LaForge as her pianist, singing Johannes Brahms's delightful song, Meine Liebe ist grün. Thank <laughs> you. 
Another singer opposite whom Jules Bledsoe was cast as Amonasro was the African-American slash Native American soprano who was known under the name Katerina Yarboro, J-A-R-B-O-R-O. She was born Catherine Lee Yarbrough in Wilmington, North Carolina, to an African-American father and a Native American mother. She became the first female singer of color to sing in an operatic presentation in the United States. After touring Europe, she reached to the United States and gave a number of very successful New York recitals. At that point, the Met invited her to join the company, but it was based on the false assumption that she was Italian. Once they determined that she was, in fact, African-American, the offer was rescinded. This is so typical of the way that black artists were treated at this time. Needless to say, there is no recorded documentation of Katrina Yarboro, but there are a number of other black singers with whom Jules Bledsoe appeared in operatic productions of whom we do have recorded material. The first is Abby Mitchell. If she's remembered today, it would be for creating the role of Clara, in Gershwin's Porgy and Bess. But she was also married to the composer Will Marion Cook, who composed some early African-American musicals that were produced on Broadway, including Clorindy or The Origin of the Cakewalk and In Dahomey, in which Abby Mitchell also appeared. She also appeared as Addie in the original production of Lillian Hellman's the Little Foxes. Here is a radio broadcast from 1935 of her singing Clara's song, Summertime. You'll notice she doesn't take the high B at the end. I don't know what the context is for the insertion of that high note, something I'm going to have to do a little research into. Another singer who appeared in the company of Jules Bledsoe 
was the great African-American baritone Todd Duncan, who, of course, also created the roles of Porgy in Porgy and Bess, and the role of Stephen Kumalo in Court Vile and Maxwell Anderson's Lost in the Stars. Here is a short excerpt of the title song from that musical, which was first produced in 1949. Before Lord God made the sea and the land, he held all the stars in the palm of his hand. And they ran through his fingers like grains of sand. And one little star fell alone. Then the Lord God hunted through the wide night air for the little dark star on the wind down there. And he stayed in and promised he'd take special care so it wouldn't get lost again. Now a man don't mind if the stars grow dim and the clouds blow over and darken him. So long as the Lord God's watching over them, keeping track how it all goes on. But I've been walking through the night and the day till my eyes get weary and my head turns gray. And sometimes it seems maybe God's gone away Forgetting his promise that we heard him say And we're lost out here in the stars, little stars Big stars blowing through the night. And we'll go, 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 Now we're going to get into the extremely thorny topic of Eugene O'Neill's 1920 play, The Emperor Jones, and the operatic settings thereof. The title character of this play, Brutus Jones, is a former Pullman porter who killed a man in a game of craps and fled justice to a West Indian island where he appoints himself the emperor. Eugene O'Neill always ruled against productions of this piece with Brutus Jones played in blackface. That does not erase many of the difficult and problematic racist tropes in the piece itself. The first production of the play 
was notably expressionistic with the beating of drums in the background growing louder and louder as the rebellious throng makes its way closer and closer to Jones, who has fled into the jungle. Paul Robeson eventually played the role of Brutus Jones and, of course, also appears in the film version of the play. Other notable African-American actors who have appeared in the piece include Kenneth Spencer and James Earl Jones, among many, many others. Jules Bledsoe himself appeared in exactly one performance of O'Neill's play in an ill-fated attempt to bring, shall we say, high culture to a popular Harlem theater. However, when it came time for an operatic version of the piece to be composed, Eugene O'Neill gave the rights to the Jewish-American composer, Louis Gruenberg. And when the piece received its world premiere at the Metropolitan Opera, the role went not to an African-American singer, but instead to the great American baritone Lawrence Tibbet, who performed the role in blackface and black body, I might add. There are a number of problematic things associated with this opera. First of all, Jules Bledsoe had also composed his own operatic setting of The Emperor Jones, and he had enlisted the assistance of Eugene O'Neill's son to try and gain him the rights to the piece. The timeline for this is a little confusing, and it's not at all sure if O'Neill gave the rights to Gruenberg after he had been approached by his son about giving the rights to Jules Bledsoe or not. Another thing that's confusing is if Jules Bledsoe's operatic setting which currently is known only to exist in fragments, was actually produced. There is some other source material that includes a scenario and portions of a libretto, I believe. But the music that is extant is by no means complete, but could very well be hidden somewhere among Bledsoe's papers that are housed both in Waco and at the Schomburg Library in Harlem. So with all of this in mind, I have decided to include in this episode two examples of Gruenberg's opera. First is a translation into Italian of the work when it received its Italian premiere in December 1951. In that production, it was performed by the eminent Italian bass Nicola Rossi-Lemeni, Photos of this production are, frankly, shocking to behold. But it's interesting to hear an excerpt from the piece. When it's performed in Italian, it sounds very much like post-verismo, as you will hear. In this production, Nicola Rossi-Lemeni is joined by the character tenor Adelio Zagonara as the slave trader Smithers, and the orchestra of the Rome opera is conducted by Gianandrea Gavazzini. Oh, 
from Emperor Jones, which has been recorded a number of times, once by the Canadian bass baritone George London, and another time by the creator of the role, Lawrence Tibbet. There's some difficult language in the text here, but I have decided to simply present the piece Racist Warts and All to you, so that you can hear the impact that Lawrence Tibbet had in this role. This recording is from 1933, and the orchestra is conducted by Wilfred Pelletier. And by the way, in the premiere of this piece, which is approximately 70-75 minutes long, it was always performed on a double bill at the Met for each of its 15 performances. It was conducted by Tullio Serafin, and it was part of a double bill with either Pagliacci or, hold on to your hats, folks, Hensel and Gretel. In hearing this work in its original English text setting, it sounds a little bit less like Verismo and more like some of the modernist music that was being produced at the time in the United States.
Jules Bledsoe also had a significant success with this role, but initially not in the United States. Rather, he toured it in Paris, Vienna, Brussels, London, and elsewhere throughout Europe. Only upon his return to the United States in 1934 did he participate in a performance of this opera, not at the Met, but as a member of an ensemble called the Aeolian Opera Association. One should note in relation to the production at the Metropolitan Opera that at the insistence of Lawrence Tibbet. The dance troupe used in the production was the New Negro Art Theater Dance Group, headed by Hemsley Winfield. I'm not sure that this was the very first instance of African-American performers on stage at the Met, but it was definitely one of the very first appearances of African-American cast members on stage at the Met in staged opera. The Aeolian Opera Association was founded by Peter Creatore. The first production of Aeolian Opera was a double bill of Cavalleria Rusticana, followed by Gruenberg's Emperor Jones, which starred Jules Bledsoe in the title role. Sadly, though Aeolian Opera was an extremely important venture because it sought to provide black opera singers with a permanent opera company in which to perform. Sadly, it did not outlast its first production and the company folded. I would just like to say that given what we have been hearing of Jules Bledsoe's artistic temperament, I think he would have been absolutely stunning in this part. And by the way, since the days of Jules Bledsoe, this opera is occasionally revived, always with African-American bass baritones in the title role, including Donnie Bray Albert and Naman Ford. Following assorted operatic and concert performances throughout the United States, including a concert in his native Waco, Jules Bledsoe left for Paris in December 1935. While in Europe, Bledsoe appeared in a production of Blackbirds of 1936. Following the closing of this show, he appeared as a soloist under Willem Mengelberg with the Concertgebouw Orchestra. It was there that he performed his own composition, African Suite, which he had also performed the year before with the BBC Symphony. Another of his major compositions is a work called Bondage, an opera based on Uncle Tom's Cabin. This has been neither published nor performed. It is here that I would like to introduce the shadowy figure of Freddy Huygens, who is first mentioned in connection with Jules Bledsoe in a London newspaper item from 1931 where he is referred to as Dutch, young, very rich, and with a lovely house in Lowndes Square. When one encounters descriptions of Freddie Huygens in relation to Jules Bledsoe, he is often referred to as his, quote, manager or his, quote, closest friend. But I'm very grateful to Katie Johnson, who in her article about Jules Bledsoe, allows these two figures to emerge 
from out of the closet together, for they were together until the end of Bledsoe's life. On that return from Europe in 1937, Freddie was in his company. The two of them returned to Bledsoe's farm upstate, which was also used as a vacation retreat for black people. During the period that he and Freddie were at the farm in Roxbury, New York, Bledsoe was also trying to get his opera bondage produced. But he had been gone from the U.S. for two years, and he was finding it very difficult to re-establish himself on the concert platform. However, he mortgaged his farm in July 1939 to secure a self-produced concert at Town Hall, which took place in January 1940. This concert served to re-establish Bledsoe's position in performing life. In March of that year, Jules and Freddie moved to Los Angeles. In 1941, Jules Bledsoe did a concert tour of the U.S., which featured two works. First of all, The Ballad for Americans by Earl Robinson and Alfred Hayes, which had been popularized by Paul Robeson himself. Another work included on those concerts was Bledsoe's own composition, Ode to America, which was dedicated to President Franklin Delano Roosevelt and which, like Ballad for Americans, featured a baritone soloist accompanied by orchestra and chorus. The work was produced on a radio broadcast in 1941. I have not yet seen any indication that a recording of that exists from that time, but recordings are often turning up from broadcasts such as these, so hope springs eternal. Eleanor Roosevelt herself gave the piece her resounding endorsement and certainly contributed to the success of Jules Bledsoe's cross-country tour of the piece. In 1941, Bledsoe broke his leg while filming Drums of the Congo. Following his recovery, he began giving benefit concerts for various humanitarian causes, in particular war bond concerts. Following one such tour, Bledsoe died on the 14th of July, 1943, from a cerebral hemorrhage. Sadly, his partner, Freddie, did not attend the funeral, but instead his lover's coffin was draped with a huge spray of flowers, which read, Your Friend, Freddie, on the ribbon. Let me read a few sentences from Katie Johnson's article. Having no rights as a spouse, Freddie would have to walk away from this relationship with nothing more than a silver set, which he thought he might use in his new job as attaché to the Netherlands. He would ship their dog, Buster, on a train to Texas, put Jules's affairs in order, and pack his bags. Heartbroken, he left the house they shared in West Hollywood, quote, as I cannot bear being in this house any longer where every object speaks of him and where I would suffocate, end quote. After the move from California, Freddie vanished without a trace. His archival story ends with Bledsoe's. His story, their story, would not be written but for the appeal of his letters. In 1928, Jules Bledsoe wrote 
an article for Opportunity magazine about his commitment to creating opportunity for other black artists. It is up to the few of us that have gotten past the sentinels at the gate to fling the gates wide open for our successors and be thoroughly capable of doing the finer things of the stage, whether it be uttering the classic lines of Shakespeare or chanting the masters of song in a manner befitting only the gods. In closing, I would like to offer a few more examples of Jules Bledsoe's recordings. A number of spirituals, including two of what I think are his finest recordings. First is the spiritual, He Rose from the Dead. a very brief spiritual called Wake Up Jacob. Wake up Jacob, days are Thank you. 
These next two are my very favorite Jules Bledsoe recordings. The first is of the traditional work song, Water Boy, which I have already featured on this podcast in memorable performances by both Paul Robeson and the extraordinary folk singer Odetta. Jules Bledsoe's performance is very understated. It's probably his most understated recording. In listening to his recordings, I have found that he tends to overemphasize certain elements of the text. This, I think, is what creates the commentary that his interpretations are often found to be melodramatic, quote-unquote. Waterboy is a very different kind of performance, however. So understated, so melancholic, and I find it to be really extraordinary.
Also from 1931, like the Waterboy recording, here is Jules Bledsoe's take on Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, in which there is again an extraordinary tenderness. Thanks so much for joining me today. I always feel a little unequal to the task when I take on a topic like this, but I feel so strongly that we need to give Jules Bledsoe his due as a performing artist and also as a very important African-American icon and also a figure who fearlessly lived his life as a gay man as part of an interracial couple. Let's round off the episode with Jules Bledsoe's one commercial recording of Old Man River. This is also a recording from 1931. Again, I find his interpretation unique in many different particulars. First, the way that it builds in intensity and is capped with a high G, which I don't think... Paul Robeson ever attempted. Robeson's interpretation was very much his own, and in fact, with the changed words that Robeson incorporated, became symbolic of his own struggle and his refusal to give in. Bledsoe bows his head, but in anger and not a little bit of desperation. What does he care if the world got trouble? What does he care if the land ain't free? Don't look up and don't look down. He don't dare make the white folks frown. Bend your knee and bow your head. And so they'll both until you're Let me go away from the white and ball. Show me that cream 
Dear friends, keep the song in your hearts. I'm Daniel Guntlach.